You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Today you have rock star chefs. Julia's the first. Mm, I think I love you. Julia had these kind of romantic dreams for what her life might be. She was really pining for adventure. I did want to be a spy and I thought I'd be a very good one. She never looked back. As soon as I got into France and realized what it was all about. One taste of that food and I never got over it. I decided that I would enroll in the Cordon Bleu. Cooking was a world of men. Women were basically part of the window dressing. You certainly didn't see them teaching. I'm Julia Child. Welcome to the French Chef. She changed everything. She really knew what she was doing. Terrific technique. She just seemed so unpretentious. Well, that didn't go very well. She was giving you this opportunity to say, don't be afraid of failure. And here it is. When you cook, you give your love. God knows it's a love affair with Paul. Julia's advice for a good marriage was the three Fs. Feed your man, flatter your man, and you had to f*** your man. Julia Child presents the Chicken Sisters. They were sort of easing her out. She said, forget it, I'm done. And she quit. Julia was a dynamic force that would not be silenced. Darling, we're going to have so much fun. Julia was more than a cook. She was a cultural force. She changed America. We need to tell how important this woman is, was, will be. You could say Julia, and everybody knew it was Julia Child. This is Julia Child. Bon appétit. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with two people behind the recent documentary, Julia, all about Julia Childs. First up, we'll hear from editor Carla Gutierrez, and after that, we'll hear from cinematographer Claudia Rashke. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and bon appetit. How did you become an editor? 
I went to film school and I really wanted to get into documentary filmmaking. And at film school, I discovered I did not like production at all. It gave me a stomachache and I love being in the edit room. And I, I found out that a lot of people get nervous in the edit room, but it's a challenge that like just makes me thrive. Like I like the stress of, you know, like trying to find the story and having a hard time finding the story. And, but it's just, I love the process. The process just like feeds me with energy as well, as much as I'm trying to feed the structure into the story and, and make something happen. Yeah. Not to be indelicate, but when did you go to film school? I was there 2003 and 2004, or I graduated 2003 or four. I don't remember what. And I went to this stand for documentary program. It's like a very small program. There's only eight of us in each class, two classes. And it's all about documentaries. You like sleep, breathe, eat, dream about documentaries for two years. So it was, I loved it. Yeah, it was great. That sounds amazing. What kind of stuff were they teaching you and, and showing you? You come out of the program being trained to, if you need to just make a film on your own as an independent, you can do every aspect of the filmmaking. They teach you how to discover your voice as a storyteller. That's really, you know, and uh, and then you're just watching a lot of documentaries and you're making, you make four short films throughout the years. And then, and then after that, I actually was very lucky that I ended up working with very experienced editor and a very generous editor who really taught me how to think about long form storytelling, like long form, you know, feature documentaries, because I had been working only on shorts during film school. To me, that was part of my education as well, just having somebody mentor me and, you know, keep teaching me the craft of editing. That was very essential to my development, I think. With you going to school in 2003 to 2005, did you ever edit on film or has it always been offline? Just for one small project, but the very first project, I actually physically cut the film. To me, that was the best exercise on discipline that I got because you really have to think because things take so much longer to, oh, let's try two frames here and two frames there. You know, it just takes a long time to do those changes. So you really have to think like, why am I making this cut? How does this decision affect the entire scene? It makes you really think about like the reasons of your decisions, which sometimes with, you know, computers, it's just like so quickly to change that you're not thinking so much about why you're cutting things or why you're trying things. I carry that over to the way that I edit now, even though it's so much faster. How do you even keep track of the shape of the story? Because I always think of an editor as being the person that helps shape things. You know, you're talking about long form editing, like keeping all of those pieces and parts in your mind in order to tell that larger story. That's going to be really difficult to even just have that ability to keep track of all that stuff. That's at the heart of our craft, especially for documentary editors. We are very much part of the writing team of the film. Like we are finding the script of the film in the edit itself. That's one of the most important parts besides making it look pretty or making it look energetic or how, you know, kind of like the rhythm of how you're cutting really the big pieces of the film and how they fit together, like the structure of the film, really the narrative arc of the film. Like that's where 
everything comes from that, right? The intention of the film. I mean, the way that I work is, you know, we're all, we always, our teams always like step back and look at the big picture all the time. Like every day we think about the big picture because the big picture determines the decisions that we're going to make on a smaller scale for each scene. And that's the part I really love. It's like how to think about like if something is going to have a climax or something is going to play out in a very special way, you know, part of somebody's journey, you have to set it up. You have to set up the motivation of a character, you know, everything very opening of the film has to set things up for you or has to do a lot of stuff for you. So like everything, like from, you know, minute zero to like minute 95, it all has to be interconnected and it all has to be talking to each other because you need that build up for things to like play out the way you want them to once you hit that like big moment of the film. So, you know, we use index cards for Julia. We were able to look at the structure of the film virtually. I think it's, it's called Jamboard that we use, Google Jamboard. Other people use other software. I love putting things on wall. And yes, that's, and always like looking, like always stepping back and being able to watch the entire film and how things are speaking to each other is essential because you can get lost in the one scene sometimes and you always have to come out of it and look at the big picture. What's your relationship like when it comes to your directors on films? It's awesome (laughs) when the collaboration works great. You know, the relationships between documentary directors and editors is a very intimate one. It's kind of like you're getting married to somebody temporarily, you know, and you're, you're making this baby. So there needs to be a lot of trust. And when there is trust and, you know, openness to like, you know, speak freely and share ideas and listen to each other, the collaboration is just usually really strong and beautiful. And, you know, I've just been lucky, like, thankfully, Julia Betsy brought me back to edit another film of theirs. And particularly in this film, and actually, you know, when we edited RBG, because that's the film that I collaborated with them on before Julia, we laugh a lot together. And we enjoy the process because making films are, especially with documentaries, they're very difficult to put together. So you just have to kind of trust the process and have fun with it. Like you can't take everything so seriously or get too stressed about it. Things will be done. The film will be made and it was going to be a difficult ride, but let's just, you know, laugh and let's get to know each other. When you're on a a film like Julia, I mean, you've got all that archive footage that you can use, probably different varying quality of archive footage throughout You've got the interviews. I don't imagine that you're getting everything delivered to you all at one time saying like, here you go, Carla, here's everything that you possibly need. Now go find the film. Yeah. No, it's a back and forth between, especially with an archival footage, because you can always go shoot. I mean, for with archival, it's just collecting the archival, right? But that's always available to you because you can always go find more footage for your film different than the limitation of like having to maybe shoot an event, right? That's all you get from that. It's a constant process. And my process informs the collection of archival and also the collection of archival informs my process. So, so it's, you know, it's very fluid that way. You know, sometimes from the interviews, you know that there's there's a moment in the interviews that is important to the story. And also, you know, the way that people talked about it in the interviews 
you can even see it in your head, you know, like the first scene that we edited for Julia was this, the anecdote of the very first time she was in front of a TV camera, not in her own show, but in, in, in a reading show, you know, that was just like a special moment because we had somebody tell us step-by-step what happened and how it was just so detailed and so lovely that we edited that first together, but it gave us a lot of ideas of potential archival that we could get, right? It was her producer that was describing what PBS looked like. So that was very dry and they usually only had professors like doing lectures on PBS. His description of it informed what we were going to look for in their archival. And then, and that was really fun to like, you know, to be able to see those professors and, <laughs> you know, being super dry on TV and that's what PBS looked like. So, so it's always a very fluid, you know, process. Like we're informing each other with Julia, for example, also the food footage that you see, you know, that beautiful, some people call it food porn, you know, <laughs> that we have in the film that was shot pretty late in the process. So that was shot when we had rough cuts of a lot of, you know, segments of the film. And those rough cuts inform choices that they made in that production footage when they were shooting that. The recipes that we were choosing were based on our story. You know, the way to film it was very much informed by the rough cuts that we had or the radio cuts that we have of people talking about those moments. So again, it was, you know, it was kind of like a constant collaboration that was happening. And we were, you know, my process was informing the shooting and it was informing the archival research and all that stuff that was coming in was informing my process as well. How many hours of Julia Child's footage, the old PBS and her ABC show and that, how much do you think that you watched over the last year, year and a half? I watched a lot of it, but, you know, there were so many of the shows that we also had team support where we had a couple of people watching all the shows because I watched a lot of it, but I just couldn't watch everything. And then they would organize the shows and like pinpoint at, you know, moments that were funny, for example, you know, or moments where she made mistakes, you know, so then I could like, just look at the spreadsheet that they had created and go to those moments and like find them, you know, it was like 30 minutes in this happened. So I had a lot of help from our team, from our associate producer. You know, there were a couple of, I think our archival researcher was also watching a lot of it. So they would guide me a little bit where to find things that we thought were good examples of her personality or, you know, when she says something funny or when, you know, like that we knew she did a lot in her show. So we could see all those examples kind of like together. So, yeah, so that's how our process went with that. I'm sure things have changed a lot since I was working on an Avid in the late 90s, you know. I imagine that you were able to just call up that footage once you knew pretty much where the time code was and what the file was. Is that kind of how it works now? Yeah, so I work with Premiere Pro, and I've been working on Premiere Pro for many years already. Different editors work differently. You know, you can do a lot of keyword searches on Premiere Pro. We just really organize, you know, the way that we were looking for those moments, for example, we organize all of our footage from those shows chronologically. So I could just like really quickly look on the browser, like the date and just find things really fast that way. You know, you can even like do markers 
And you can look at like a whole browser of markers and do like searches for keywords. Like there's so many ways of like finding things. For me, maybe I'm a little old school, but just having like a good chronological organization of my clips on the browser, it just works for me. So, But you can even like find clips on your timeline. Yeah, there's so many ways that you can you can do searches on Premiere Pro, which is fantastic. What were some of the biggest challenges of putting Julia together? I think one thing that we were able to figure out well was that there was a lot of Julia's voice on TV, obviously all her shows, like you could hear her. There were a lot of interviews of Julia throughout the years, but most of those interviews were focused on recipes and food, what she thought about food, right? Only in the later years, she really started talking more about her life and she was asked more about her life, but those interviews were still limited. She, you know, she would usually like repeat a couple of anecdotes over and over again. So there wasn't much of her, of her herself talking about her life, but we really did use Julia's voice quite a bit in the film or maybe not quite a bit, but it feels like she's very present in the way that she's talking about her life. And, and I think that that was just, you know, working really hard to find, you know, a strategic moments to like bring her in or edit, you know, her voice in the TV show where she's just like showing food, but then bring her voice in voiceover as well to give us a little bit of insight as to, you know, kind of like the behind the scenes, behind the scenes in her show or the way that she was thinking about it. So in a way it was a challenge because we had limited material of her talking about her life. I think we used it well. So I've heard from many people that they feel like Julia's voice is very present in the film, that she's carrying a lot of the film. I think that's that's a testament that we we made it work. We made the limitation that we face work for us. And she feels a lot more present than, you know, the material that we had of her talking about her life. You know, sometimes you face a limitation and it opens up sometimes better options. Like, for example, we didn't have her voice talking about her early years with like falling in love with her husband, but we had these letters and we had the letters from her husband as well. And so we decided to use that text, but it was, you know, we edited in such, in such a way that it was a conversation between her and her husband in a way, like the impressions that they got. Of, and that choice ended up giving us more intimate material of her, but not being scared. Like, Oh, we don't have, her voice using text for a documentary could be scary because you think that it might be dry. And But I think the way that we put it together, it was lively and you got to sense their personality. So a limitation of not having her narrate that part of her life gave us an opportunity to actually be more intimate and, you know, and kind of get into their heads and where were they at at that point in their romance limitations a lot of times just give you more like better things to work with did the pandemic affect you at all making this yes we had been working i think for about a month and a half or two months in an office when we all had to pack and go home but in our process and working with my associate editor grace mendenhall we are always very, I think, good and thorough in the way that we do media management and set up our projects. So technically, we just, you know, move our things home, but it didn't change our flow. 
So, you know, the next day we were able to like continue the way that we had been editing. We had to, you know, do more transfers online of like new archival coming in or if there was like any new interviews, sometimes we had to mail drives to each other. And then there was the dialogue between, you know, that continuous dialogue between the directors and editors. Thankfully, because we had worked before, you know, Julie, Betsy and I already had established, you know, a common language and we were very familiar with each other and we were very familiar with the way that we worked. So it went really smoothly. I missed them a lot. Again, we laughed so much that I really missed having them in the room and enjoying the process together, but we still really did enjoy the process on Zoom. And they set up a daily meeting, which I think was important to bring the whole team together and, you know, just check in with each other. Also even check in in like, how are we doing? How nervous are we? It was really sad because a few of our team members were in Brooklyn. And at the very beginning of our meetings, we would hear a lot of ambulance sirens, you know, going in the background. So it was stressful. But then again, we had Julia Child to look at and food and like love being shared through food. We just got lucky. Like we were working on a topic that in a way, gave us some calm and joy through the stresses of the early stresses of the pandemic. So, so we were very lucky to be working on this film. When you're working, do you work on just one project at a time? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I was supervising or you know, or only doing consulting, I would do multiple jobs. But when I'm editing, I'm just only editing one one project. That's all my head can handle. <laughs> Is the version that I've seen, is that the final version or do you ever go back before like the Blu-ray release and ever have to make changes or want to make changes? No, especially not with the way that Julie and Betsy work. I always joke that they were the first filmmakers where I never needed to convince them to cut things out. Like they were ready to like trim it and make it really tight And for the first time ever in my editing experience, I was the one that was saying, let's not lose that yet. Let's just, you know, see it for the next rough cut, which is so strange. Like usually you have to make really hard decisions of letting things go that are might be really important to the, you know, the life, you know, of the person that you're telling the story about, but letting those things go make the person's journey stronger in film. And, and the emotional content stronger. But I never had I never had a problem with them. So we end up, when we love picture, we love picture and it's pretty trimmed and it's pretty tight. We never feel like we miss something. So with them, there's never opening up a film again. But I've, I've seen that happen in other films where it wasn't quite ready, especially like sometimes when you have festival deadlines and you just have to take it to the festival. A lot of times I've seen films that they have a version for the first premiere and then it's different from their broadcast or the theatrical release. Not with us. What are you working on now? Right now, interviewing for my job for next year. I'm taking a little bit of a break right now, which is very welcome. Because <laughs> I've been nonstop for like, yeah, for the past 10 years, I think. I am in conversations with some incredibly interesting films. So I'm excited to, I'm excited to uh, 
jump onto the next one pretty soon. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Lottie, I'm very curious how you decided to become a cinematographer. That is, uh, uh, yeah, a very curious uh, little story because uh, I was having my heart set to becoming a modern dancer. And so I moved to, uh, I had like two thoughts, either go to Amsterdam, which also has a big modern dance scene. And then uh, um, I ended up, however, in New York with Martha Graham, Mary Hawkins, Mary Anthony, all the greats to study with. And while I was in my element, because I had loved dance and choreography my entire life, but I've also uh, done a lot of still photography and printing. Being in New York at that point and uh, making ends meet, I worked as a waitress and there was a bartender who was a part-time cinematography teacher at Columbia University. And uh, one day I brought in my photos and he said, like, oh, my God, you have such a great eye for composition. And I was at that point doing, you know, black and white photography. He's like, oh, and your the values and the light reflections you play with. It's dramatic. It's beautiful. Have you ever considered being a cinematographer? And I thought, well, I have no clue what he's talking about. So, no, I don't know what it is, but maybe you can explain. He's like, well, I teach this. And why don't you come with me on one of the students' films that, that I uh, supervise? So like, sure. And if you're interested, I'll teach you how to, you know, load a camera and you can assist me in being, you know, a camera assistant and kind of get the feel for it if you'd like. And I was open at that point to exploring that direction. And I went on set and it was as if somebody switched the magic switch because here I was watching the crew doing all the crafting of the light, the sculpting of the light, the creating that magic and really being at the edge of where reality and fantasy meet. You kind of step into this realm of magic where the actors start playing and emoting and the story unfolds. I was so mesmerized by it and realized that with a camera, you have choreography. With lighting, you have painting and sculpting and creating that drama very much like photography. 
And with the camera, you had uh, an element of uh, sculpting, of, of working with a sculpture. And besides painting, I also did sculpting and I also did, so dance, sculpting, painting were all arts that I had invested in in my schooling. And so it kind of all interlocked and it was like magic. And so it was then and there. It was like 1983 when it happened. And from that day on, there was really only one direction moving forward. I never, ever veered off that path. Just went completely for cinematography. What were some of those early gigs like for you? Were you doing more documentary, more narrative? What was that like? So I started out in the narrative uh, uh, field and working my way up the ladder as a camera assistant, then joined the union, started shooting feature films myself. I had a bunch of uh, uh, student films that I shot at Columbia University thanks to this part-time cinematographer and therefore was able to really hone the craft on a small level and then create a real be in some film festivals where ultimately, you know, there are agent scouts in the audience. And I was scouted by the Gersh agency. They signed me. And before I knew it, I started shooting feature films. And I did that for 10 years. And then I decided that uh, I wanted to explore documentaries because, you know, the hard part about feature films is that you have to have a really great script, really talented actors. You have somebody who has to have a vision uh, as a director and to make that all work at the same time and then have an audience or a society that is hungry for that theme or that topic. You know, a lot of stars have to align. And so after 10 years of investing, you know, my, my creative ambition I felt that I needed to switch and I wanted something that was more real, where characters were more truthful and authentic, where I could relate. And also where I didn't have a sense of that people were just going to eat popcorn. I wanted to have an impact, you know, like of people having um, an awakening or being motivated to take actions or at least be more open minded. What was that transition for you as far as going from film into the digital realm? Interesting that you're asking that because I was fighting it for the longest time. I was holding on to 35 millimeter films for the longest time. I didn't want to touch video. But, you know, as it became uh, better, because at that point it was interlace and, you know, there were so many, just as a visual artist, it was really difficult when you start with a color rendition that is so compressed in video and couldn't even see the gradations where things, no matter what you would do, felt really flat and, and the motion was not as uh, it was in film, you know, it was just such a different experience on video always super sharp and <laughs> i remember when i finally decided to join the video world of how often i would put a net at the rear end of the lens like the fogal black sheer net to just get the edge of that super sharp focus and then it really made a huge jump forward when the sensors became much 
bigger and uh, you had a real shallow depth of field and you could really be more of an artist and craft the storytelling visuals, you know, craft the visuals more to match the story. When you shoot a film like uh, Fauci or Julia, what type of camera are you using these days? So I'm a huge fan of the Canon products, and I have been using them uh, mostly. I would say 80% of my shoots are shot with either, nowadays it's with a C500 full frame. And before that, like uh, with Julia, I shot on the C300 Mark II, but all in C-Log with uh, Cinema Gamut, you know, um, we shot Julia in 4K, um, and a Fauci as well, but full frame. It was a different experience. How was it shooting Julia for you? What was that experience like? Part of it is it was a documentary. It felt really uh, part of what I love to uh, portray, which are women who are feminists, who are strong leaders, who made a difference, just like RBG or like Polly Murray. Um, Julia fit into that path. And I admired her for the longest time because, you know, she is in a way such an oddball, right? She was like a, a spy, even though that uh, more on the uh, bureaucratic uh, typing element. But then she was just such an oddball in terms of she was six foot two. Uh, she was uh, not regarded as somebody who was really pretty. And uh, yet she she was, you know, not wanting to do what uh, her family asked her to do. So she went her own way. And I think that always uh, impressed me, especially because she was 50 when she started her career. I think her book came out in 1961. And, and the, the year beforehand, she made that famous, you know, omelet on the, on the show to demonstrate how you can improve American cooking. She was just inspirational because so often, especially during her time or my mother's time as a woman, you had a predetermined path. And that was, you know, child rearing or being a secretary at most, but uh, really becoming a leader and an example of venturing out and being creative, being a businesswoman. All of these elements are very inspirational. And I felt that that just had my name all over it. So I had to join the team. There are two or three DPs listed for the film. What were you responsible for? Well, ultimately, I was a lead cinematographer. And uh, we did have uh, uh, Nanda Fernandez uh, Berliard, who is a French uh, food macro specialist. And uh, his food cinematography is very uh, different than what you see on uh, the most commercial photographies where he would uh, um, zone in on something that is uh, uh, abstract and then would pull out and it would reveal it's a mushroom. Although I don't think that we used much of that in our film in terms of the abstraction, the idea was first of uh, having this whole thing, what is this? But then it became much more cohesive of just uh, trying to get to the emotion. What is food? And food is emotion. Food is the uh, 
trigger of memories and such indulgence that you go into your taste buds and, and your smells are activated. And that was ultimately the biggest challenge of how can you bring that across visually. And I always felt that the best way to do so is to emulate as if the smells, as they rise, that you create camera movements, which also have that lightness of, of taking off, of being able to move as the vapors of the foods kind of spread. So I had that as a, as a theme and wanted to incorporate that. Whereas Nanda kept very much to the one style, which was being on a lazy Susan that turned around and then photographing it in slow motion against black, mostly very abstract, beautiful, beautiful work. I really thought he did uh, splendidly, but there was the challenge of how do you bring something that is so abstract and commercial looking into a documentary? There needs to be a bridge. And so when the set was built and I was asked to do basically the intermediate step of anything that had to be done with hands on the recreation of uh, Julia's kitchen, how do you go about using then the archival that was, of course, deteriorated and with soft focus and sometimes, you know, weak contrast. There was just nothing there to hold on to and faded colors to that kitchen set that was all in faded colors to match her kitchen and then go into Nanda's, uh, you know, extreme macros. And so I decided that in between shooting on the C300 Mark II with a 50 millimeter cinema prime at minimum focus on the easy rig so that I can do my little moves and be the vapor and be sensual about it and kind of take it all in on a very close and intimate way. And that worked. And that really worked. We used filtration. I used the Hollywood magic filtration just to give it a little bit, cutting a little bit of that sharpness edge off because cinema primes are also super sharp. And then having, you know, the beautiful sensor, which really is like a canvas to me to use lighting and we bathed the food in backlights and uh, little golden uh, reflections. And so it was a tremendous amount of fun. But really, I felt very close to Julia in that way because we saw step by step the creation, our fabulous cook, whose name is Susan. Let me just... Uh, Susan Bunchen? Yes, exactly, exactly. I felt with a 50 mil, with a choice of shooting the food on set in a very, very taste style where you're basically witnessing every step, but because it couldn't really be repeated, because once the flour and the butter is, is uh, mixed together, that that was it. And yes, they had, uh, Susan had created a second option for me if I wouldn't get it the first time around. But we had just so much to shoot that it felt very much like as if I was shooting Cinema Verite and just exploring as it happened. I have to say that uh, I'm also a foodie. I 
absolutely love different tastes and different, you know, cuisines. And so when you are watching everything step by step, you are salivating, you know, like, and seeing it through the camera so close up was just as if you were eating it, you know, it was just uh, such a tease. And it was during COVID and we weren't allowed to eat anything. It sounds like such a mixture of, I don't want to use the word trickery, but just I guess that's the right word, that and a little bit of yeah, magic to tie all of those things together. It just sounds incredible that you were able to bridge that gap that you're talking about. I am very happy when I look at the uh, outcome and the collaboration, obviously, Kala did magic. Uh, she is so gifted to find a way to make it all interplay and come together. As a cinematographer, so often I have a concept, I have a mood board or a style guide in my head, and I adjust it as we go, and I keep it kind of, it's a process rather than a plan that is written in stone. So it adjusts, and it has to because it's a documentary, and so often in documentaries, you don't know really what else you will find and you are as a documentary filmmaker and also as a cinematographer somewhat an explorer of the moment and if you are given the opportunity in a scene to explore and no matter if it's food or if it is an interview at a location i do so and i do that with the intention of serving the story sometimes I pull in my toolkit of, oh, no, we have to black out all the windows because I only need that window all the way in the back. That'll give me the greatest shaft of natural light. And then I can merge it all together with my f subject lighting and, and so forth. Or it is when I know that there is a certain action that was happening in the preparation of the food. I know, oh, I need my edge light to come really low from over here and matter of fact, I need to use a source four with a, a gobo pattern that looks like a window and it should be lows because it's afternoon and the sun is setting because we're making tarts. It all kind of like comes together for giving it kind of like the right atmosphere so that the food itself or that the subject that was interviewed can resonate with what they're contributing to to the film and to Julia's story. While you're doing this, what's your relationship like with Julie and Betsy, the co-directors of the film? At this point, we've worked together on three different movies. And so obviously, we have a great respect and great understanding of what we like and what we can do. Although I have to say that I think Julie and Betsy were really surprised about uh, my food photography because Julie was asking me, it's like, why don't you do feature films? <laughs> and it, as sweet as that was, you know, I said like, well, I, I actually did. I did for 10 years. And I don't think that Julie and Betsy actually knew that I had all of that in my back pocket. And that um, I made a conscious choice, you know, to do documentaries for the reasons of that I wanted the films to be more meaningful to me. And I still am 100% convinced of making great documentaries. And these days, you know, Kenny, these days, it is even 
more amazing because directors are so much eager to get more cinematic visuals to tell the stories. They are uh, no longer beholden to just having the story being explained by talking heads. So there is so much more freedom as a cinematographer to be creative and, and visualize and even bring in recreations or, you know, abstractions. And so I feel incredibly happy right now with those opportunities. You said you shot this during COVID. When did you start shooting? So we did start prior to COVID, but then the food shoot, because it was scheduled after Carla had already done a rough cut and we knew exactly where, what would end up. And because Nanda had shot some already in, in Paris, um, and then with the complications of COVID, you know, the set wasn't ready. And then we had to wait. Our set was the last part of principal photography for the documentary. During that time, all the health guides had to be followed. And it was quite difficult because, you know, we had different boxes. We had to stand in where our gear was. And it's uh, especially difficult when you are on set with food. Therefore, there was really no opportunity to, to taste it until the very end. Because uh, um, we had to wait until the last day of shooting. And then Susan was persuaded. You have to understand. I mean, every day going to set and you see the most delicious food being prepared and you can't touch it, right? And so we were begging. We were begging of just having a taste. And then finally, she prepared it in such a way that she portioned it. That at the end of the day, you know, we were allowed to take it home. We were just, you know, not able to, as usual, share and, you know, cross taste and put our forks in all jointly into the dish. <laughs> that was not possible. Mine was edible because I know a lot of times when you hear about food being shot, it's like, oh, well, that milk for the cereal is actually Elmer's glue cheats for the camera to make things look so much better. Yeah, no, we didn't do any of that. Absolutely real. I don't know in terms of Nanda if he used any kind of specialty tricks to make it more glistening in, in the lighting because he pretty much worked by himself under supervision, but uh, he was just doing his own thing. Whereas for us, it was just, you know, we needed the process. We needed to see how the hands are really making the food. And so there was really no chance to, to cheat on that. And, and you also see it just the way the chickens are being tossed or how the meat is being seasoned or how it's being carved. You know, this is all, you know, live and uh, pretty much the reality of uh, how anybody would make that food. It seemed like the pandemic slowed you down that much. You have, what, four feature documentaries out this year? Yeah, no, it's only it's only three, yeah. But it... Uh, um, uh, only three. 
<laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it was surprising to me too. But I also think it it had to do with the fact that uh, everything else was slowed down uh, in terms of COVID, and uh, we had started our feature documentaries prior to COVID. So we knew that we were able to finish it up by shifting more to archival and to interviews. And interviews during COVID were really doable. I did two other shows. Now I, I was like thinking, what else did I do? But I did two other shows for American Masters. One was a code breaker. And the other one that uh, came out this year was uh, the trucks, uh, ballerina boys, also for American Master. And uh, both of them are, you know, one hour documentaries. We spoke with some of the folks behind Boys State earlier this year. What was your hand in that one? With Boys State, that was also a fascinating project. Uh, so I'm a co-founder of the Camera Collective. And the Camera Collective is basically uh, six very experienced cinematographers for documentaries and fiction, but mostly documentaries here in New York. And we started helping each other out because very often when you do a documentary, you know, it doesn't happen like a feature film where you have consecutive shooting days. It happens that you shoot for a few days and then maybe a month later you shoot for a few days. Sometimes it can span over years to finish a feature documentary depending on the access that is given to you. And so with the collective, we help each other out because we have uh, equal experience and uh, a, a wonderful way of understanding each other's styles. So it is easy to make a good match. Boy State was uh, presented to Torsten Tilo, one of our members and founders. And he had this whole concept because it was 1,700 campers who had to be photographed. And of course, as a one-person crew, you wouldn't be able to do that. And so he said, I need to have our entire team join and we will each get characters to follow so we're self-directed. There's no director with us. We are just going to be self-directed capturing the character and then reporting back at the end of the day. And so uh, not everybody was available, but four on our team on our from our collective joined and we basically each had our separate characters. And so it was a very... Uh, um, wonderful 10 days of shooting for the entire camp and that's how it happened so i had my character renee and followed him around as things uh, escalated <laughs> i have one more question for you what was it like shooting on Wee's playhouse <laughs> oh my goodness i had the best time on Wee's playhouse Again, here is something where you can witness how it is really done, and then you see the magic when it is edited, right? You know that the genie is not just a head, uh, that there's actually somebody sitting in there, and how do they get in and out, right? You know that there's actually a puppeteer in the chairs. So all of these different things of how they are coordinated and the the laughter when when things went wrong and you know uh, he was certainly just a normal man and then when he was on set he just cranked out that funky voice 
<laughs> and he had his stick, but we really enjoyed it. We had two cameras for, for PV's Playhouse. And so it was a uh, multiple, you know, always having two angles. Nowadays, I always shoot two. Uh, on the last series, I shot with three cameras simultaneously. So it seems to obviously is, is, uh, gives you much more options, especially for a television show as well as for a series. Are you doing different angles or do you have one set at a close up, one at a medium? How is that? Yes, exactly. So on the last show, I had, a uh, extreme wide shot and extreme close up and a medium shot. You know, you have there for a little bit because the sensor quality. I mean, the the, the Canon sensors are fantastic, and the resolution is so high that uh, you can, to a certain percentage, zoom in. And so, if you are in a close up, you can zoom into an even closer shot. If you're in a medium shot, you can zoom into a medium close up. And the same thing for wide shot. Although the the wide shots I love because all about uh, compositional elements like leading lines or uh, symmetry or you know diagonals. So you evaluate your framing differently because you want the eye to float through the frame and kind of relax when it uh, presents your subject. And so that is uh, in natural settings like offices or any kind of space. You look at the space differently when you think about a wide shot, whereas when you're looking at uh, a close-up, it is often very forgiving because you know you're going to have you're using shallow depth of field, and therefore the background will be out of focus, and so you're working more with color of trying to get a little bit of blue or a little bit of green to offset the background in soft focus. Whereas, and sometimes I even bring pillows and I just throw them in there just to give you that little bit of color for the extreme close-ups. I love shooting on the 135 uh, Cinema Prime for my close-ups. It's just beautiful, very painterly. But the wide shots are different, you know? The wide shots, uh, the depth of field is not shallow. And so it is the pattern of the space that you need to understand of how to offset that with, uh, you know, your subject. And how does that present the subject and the theme or the topic that they're talking about in the best way? And this is so much fun. I'm having so much fun listening to you talking uh, about you're this. The best. <laughs> but you also have great questions, I have to say. These are wonderful questions. Thank you so much for for uh, inviting me. Oh, well, thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Same here. Same here. I hope I didn't babble too long. No, no. Edible. I mean, not edible. <laughs> I'm still thinking about that food. I have to say, if I would have to pick one of my favorites, it would, you know, I, I it would be really hard. I mean, I am um, a pescatarian, so I don't eat red meat. But boy, that roast beef looked so good! It was—I yeah. was tempted. I was tempted, but I ended up eating the uh, sal- salad niçoise, and that was awesome. And then that pear tart—that pear tart was just the best, absolutely the best. Well, Mish Rashke, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Well, I had such a good time talking to you. I hope that uh, your audience will enjoy my little anecdotes. 
makes a great chef. Well, training and technique, of course, plus a great love of food, a generous personality, and the ability to invent hot chocolate truffles. Meltingly addictive hot chocolate truffles. Balls of creamy chocolate filling that are rolled in fresh crumbs. Let's have another piece. As long as the dough is relaxed, it's ready to roll. Ready to Let's roll. Let's have another piece. All in a ball. Ready to roll. Ready to roll. Ready to roll. Freshness is essential. That makes all the difference. All the difference. I like to smell something cookies. This is what food cooking is all about. This is what food cooking is all about. I like sour cream cheese fillings, fillings, and the sweet topping, topping, all on that crisp pastry. Ooh. You can't define these in a recipe. You can only know them. You can only know them. Fresh ginger and fish sauce. You need some fat in your diet, or your body can't process your vitamins. Freshness is essential. That makes all the difference. All the difference. I like to smell something cookies. Makes me feel it. Bring on the roasted potatoes. Bring on the horses. This is what good cooking is all about. This is what good cooking is all about. The real test of a good chef is a perfectly roasted chicken. The lemons, the garlic, the rosemary, butterfree, butterfree, rosemary, rosemary, full, rich, creamy, suspended in sauce. To soften it, fast and tough and rough. I'm just gonna show you how you do it. Beat it up a little bit, just to soften it. Chop it, hold it, roll it, chop it, fast and tough and rough. Freshness is essential. That makes all the difference. All the difference. I like to smell something. Cookies. This is what good cooking is all about. This is what good cooking is all about. Cook and cook and keep on cooking. This is the way to live. Cook and cook and keep on cooking. Everyone gather around the dinner table. Cook and cook and keep on cooking. This is the way to live. Cook and cook and keep on cooking. This is the way to eat.